Welcome to the big secret on Wall Street this week. America's next great energy fortune just broke ground. Get ready for a crisis this winter. It could make you a fortune. How driftwood LNG will turn $2 billion into $100 billion with two permits and the construction giant Bechtel. Plus, what happens when political delusions run headlong into economic realities? Sunday, September the 7th, 2008, was a bad day for Hank Paulson. The U.S. Treasury Secretary and former CEO of Goldman Sachs was dealing with a financial Armageddon, one he'd lied about. In 2005 and 2006, Wall Street's leading investment banks, notably Merrill Lynch, Lehman Brothers, Bear Stearns, and Goldman, made fortunes by packaging thousands of individual mortgages into securities they could trade. The fees for creating these collateralized debt obligations, or CDOs, were typically around 2% of the total issuance. In 2005, Wall Street firms packaged $178 billion worth of mortgages into CDOs. The banks were making so much money from mortgages, billions, they began buying entire mortgage underwriting firms to gain more control over the supply of mortgages. But even that couldn't satisfy the market's demand for CDOs. In 2006, total Wall Street mortgage-related CDO issuance was a staggering $316 billion. Innovations and big ideas in the financial markets tend to follow an arc that repeats time and time again. At first, a new innovation provides clear benefits for both customers and bankers. That leads to widespread acceptance and growth in the new financial product or strategy. That's what happened with mortgage securities, too. 30 years ago, when Solomon Brothers began packaging prime mortgages into securities to sell to local banks around the country, it was a good way for local banks to diversify their portfolios and make their assets safer. However, the growth of the new thing eventually leads competitors to pile on. Every bank on Wall Street eventually creates copycat products that lead to more and more bankers chasing the same customers and more and more customers chasing the same kinds of investments. Sooner or later, whatever advantages the earlier investors earned disappear as prices and fees keep increasing because of growth and demand. That's when what was at first a good idea becomes a farce. In mortgage securities, the farce began in 2005 when Merrill Lynch stormed into the business. Merrill, whose core business was retail brokerage, was hardly an investment bank. It had zero expertise in mortgages or in creating derivatives. But a complete lack of experience didn't stop them. In a span of 24 months, Merrill made 12 major acquisitions related to the mortgage industry, including the $1.6 billion acquisition of First Franklin, a major subprime mortgage lender. And that's when things got really weird. The banks soon discovered it was cheaper and faster, and thus more profitable, not to bother with underwriting or purchasing mortgages at all. Demand for CDOs was so strong that investors were willing to invest in insuring existing CDOs, securities Wall Street had already packaged. Investors were willing to make these very risky bets because, for more than 50 years, real estate prices had only gone up. Thus, in the eyes of many investors, mortgage securities were a de facto risk-free asset. Investors were seeking more risk in housing, not less. Wall Street obliged by creating synthetic CDOs. These were insurance contracts, credit default swaps in the language of Wall Street, that guaranteed the performance of the underlying mortgages in CDOs. These securities allowed investors to invest in specific levels or tranches in the parlance of mortgage risk. They allowed Wall Street to sell investors the same piece of mortgage paper multiple times, which seemed like nirvana to the bankers. And, in the very short term, it did create a lot of profits and bonuses, but it also magnified and concentrated the financial risks of the mortgage security business enormously. Finally, in the final phase of this classic Wall Street drama, when everything starts to fall apart, 
What was only a farce becomes a fraud as everyone tries to avoid holding the bag. In the background of the mortgage real estate mania, the Federal Reserve had been gradually raising interest rates since 2004. By 2007, interest rates were five and a quarter percent, and that's when the music stopped. Mortgage default rates began moving higher, faster than anyone had ever seen before, and the value of Wall Street CDOs collapsed in turn, starting with the riskiest tranches. In the summer of 2007, the entire subprime mortgage industry imploded, and Wall Street's losses mounted. Quarter after quarter, the markdowns and the write-offs grew and grew. Soon, the losses were in the billions. Bear Stearns was the first to collapse in the spring of 2008. The big problem on Wall Street wasn't really the CDOs they had already packaged. The big problem was, given the collapse in the value of existing CDOs, there wasn't any practical way for the major banks to sell the billions in subprime mortgages they owned in their warehouses, mortgages they were in the process of packaging into securities. Nobody would buy CDOs anymore. Making matters worse, the banks also retained billions worth of, quote, super senior tranches of the synthetic CDOs they built. Notably, these were also the securities that doomed insurance giant AIG. These were securities that were backed by the underlying value of millions of prime mortgages and were AAA rated. The rating implied that there was virtually zero risk of default, which meant regulators didn't require much underlying collateral against these assets. And that meant the banks and AIG could hold virtually unlimited quantities of them without any underlying collateral. But as the prices for CDOs were getting worse each week, and as mortgage default rates continued to increase, many of the super senior securities suffered ratings downgrades, which meant banks had to post collateral. And as the banks were highly leveraged, in some cases 50 to 1, the amount of collateral required was gigantic. By July of 2008, Merrill Lynch had written off an incredible $46 billion in mortgages and was trying to raise another $8.5 billion in new stock to post as collateral. But Treasury Secretary Paulson's real problem was Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. These were the two enormous government-sponsored enterprises, GSEs, that sat at the very center of the mortgage industry. On a combined basis, these two firms provided more liquidity to the U.S. mortgage market than any other firms by a wide margin. They owned or guaranteed almost $5 trillion worth of mortgages, roughly half of every mortgage in the country, and were leveraged 68 to 1. In May of 2008, a well-known <clears throat> financial writer from Baltimore told people the truth about the unfolding debacle at the GSEs. Freddie and Fannie own or guarantee 45% of all the mortgages in the United States, $4.8 trillion worth of mortgages. But looking only at the mortgages they actually own and hold on their balance sheets, you'll find mortgages with a face value of $1.7 trillion. They hold these assets with only a sliver of equity, about $70 billion in core capital. On a combined basis, they're leveraged by a little more than 24 to 1. Thus, a 5% loss in the value of their mortgages would wipe out 100% of the equity in each firm. Looking beyond their balance sheets to their off-balance sheet guarantees, you see that they're actually leveraged 68 to 1, meaning a 1.4% decline and the value of their total on and off balance sheet obligations would wipe out shareholders. Nationally, the average price of a home has now fallen by more than 15%. The delinquency rate for all residential mortgages at the end of the first quarter of 2008 was 6.35%, a record high. In addition, the percentage of mortgages in foreclosure is now 2.47%, up almost 100% from last year. Adding the two numbers together, you can see that nearly 9% of all the mortgages in the United States are either in default or in foreclosure. The Census Bureau reports that about 10% of houses built after the year 2000 are now vacant. This is unprecedented. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the two largest and most leveraged owners of U.S. mortgages, are sure to go bankrupt in the next 12 months. 
Congress may decide to assume their liabilities to prevent an unprecedented global financial calamity, but Congress won't bail out the firm's shareholders. Freddie Mae and Freddie Mac are going to zero. Porter Stansbury's Investment Advisory, May 2008. Government officials were not nearly as forthcoming. On July 15, 2008, Hank Paulson publicly brushed aside the notion that the giant GSEs at the center of America's banking system were in trouble. Fannie and Freddie are, quote, well capitalized, he told the Senate Banking Committee. It was a bold lie. Only six days later, while meeting with a dozen large hedge fund managers, most of whom were ex-Goldman executives, at the offices of Eaton Park Capital in New York, Paulson told a vastly different story. In fact, the Treasury planned to seize Freddie and Fannie, which would wipe out the shareholders. The financial losses suffered by Fannie and Freddie totaled an incredible $265 billion. The political delusion that every American could afford a home met the cold, hard economic reality that surprisingly few Americans are creditworthy enough to borrow large sums of money against fixed assets. Home ownership for millions was just a financial illusion. They were living in a credit bubble, not a house. Fannie and Freddie created the bubble. Now they were bankrupt almost four times over. Paulson knew millions of people were about to lose their homes. And on Sunday, September the 7th, Hank Paulson announced that both Fannie and Freddie were insolvent and would become wards of the treasury, a conservatorship, he called it. Without Fannie and Freddie, there was no functional market for mortgages. A week later, on Monday, September the 15th, Lehman Brothers failed and declared a $600 billion bankruptcy. Lehman's bankruptcy was an order of magnitude that's 10 times larger than the previous biggest bankruptcy in U.S. history, Enron's collapse in 2001. Lehman's losses were simply staggering. And the first two days of Lehman's bankruptcy, J.P. Morgan, backed with guarantees against losses by the Federal Reserve, had to provide Lehman with $138 billion in funding. The next week, Merrill Lynch failed but technically avoided bankruptcy by way of a Federal Reserve arranged sale to Bank of America. Again, the losses were hard to comprehend. The portion of Merrill's $260 billion CDO inventory that could be sold went for 22 cents on the dollar. Shareholders at Bank of America only approved the merger because Merrill's losses were fraudulently withheld from the public. When the true extent of the losses were revealed, Bank of America stock lost half its value, $50 billion, in just four trading days. Following Lehman's collapse, the Federal Reserve would go on to offer $7.7 trillion worth of loan guarantees and swaps with financial institutions around the world. Without trillions in government financial guarantees to stem the panic and cover the losses, most of the world's major investment banks would have failed. The resulting cascade of losses would have immediately destroyed major U.S. companies like General Electric, which was completely reliant on Wall Street's short-term money market. So where did all the money come from? Well, the Federal Reserve printed it, of course. The Federal Reserve's balance sheet immediately doubled from under a trillion dollars to over two trillion. An entire smorgasbord with new financial programs with ridiculous names and acronyms like TARP or TARP sprang to life. The Fed bought billions of mortgages to bail out the banks. And later, as the government ran massive deficits to spare the economy a cleansing recession, it bought trillions in federal debt too. By the end of 2013, the Federal Reserve balance sheet rested at $4 trillion, a fourfold increase to our monetary base from pre-crisis levels. Snowflake Economics. This week's letter, believe it or not, isn't about mortgages or investment banking, or even specifically about corrupt government officials. This week's letter is about what happens when politics collide with hard economic realities. The mortgage debacle is a perfect case study. So who is responsible for the mortgage crisis and the trillions of losses investors suffered because of widespread mortgage fraud? 
Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were, by far, the largest providers of capital to the mortgage market. Their guarantees created the market. In fact, without the financing they provided to the system, the 30-year fixed-rate mortgage wouldn't exist. Why not? Because it's far too risky to offer such long-term financing at fixed rates in a government-controlled fiat currency. Their dominance in providing capital meant their underwriting standards were the industry's standards. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac dictated who could get a mortgage in the U.S. and under what terms. While this power wasn't explicitly granted to them, if your mortgage didn't conform to their standards, it would be packaged and sold to them, which meant it wouldn't be underwritten by most mortgage banks. The problem was Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were not rational economic actors. Even though they had shareholders, they were primarily instruments of government policy. Fannie and Freddie, much like Medicare and Social Security, offer the public the promise of enormous economic benefits without any apparent costs. They are, if you will, a central feature of our country's snowflake economic system. They offer consumers what they believe they're entitled to have, regardless of the underlying economic reality. In the imaginary world of snowflake economics, Social Security isn't a tax or a liability of the federal government, it's insurance. But what about the trillions and unfunded liabilities of the program? Well, they're not anywhere to be found on the government's balance sheet. They don't exist in snowflake economics, but they certainly exist in real life. Likewise, the financial risks that Fannie and Freddie assumed on behalf of the U.S. financial system were never on the government's books. But where did the $265 billion bailout come from? Well, the government, of course. And here is what most people don't know and will never be told. The GSEs were bound to fail. They were designed to fail. There is no way they could not have failed, at least not after 1992. And that year, Barney Frank, the liberal congressman from Massachusetts and the first openly gay member of Congress, decided that the government should help more Americans buy a home, even if they couldn't afford one. Frank led efforts to force Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac to buy mortgages held by poor people. The Housing and Community Development Act of 1992 required the GSEs to show that 30% of the home mortgages they bought were made to people with incomes at or below the median income of their communities. More importantly, the Department of Housing and Urban Development was granted the authority to readjust this regulation over time. Barney Frank was determined to give mortgages to poor people and for that power to be a major part of the Democratic Party's economic agenda. Congressman Frank didn't waste much time. In 1996, with a Democrat, Bill Clinton, in the White House running for re-election, the GSE's median income quota was raised to 50%. Half of Fannie and Freddie's mortgage buying would be reserved to help poor people have access to mortgage credit. Then, under G.W. Bush's administration, Barney Frank was able to push it all the way to 55% of their mortgage buying. How could any leveraged financial institution survive an underwriting policy that specifically required it to buy mortgages from mostly poor people who inevitably had weaker credit? Maybe through massive scale? No way. By 2002, Fannie and Freddie owned well over a trillion dollars of subprime and other low-quality mortgages. The other federal lending agencies joined the fund too. The FHA, the Federal Home Loan Banks, the Veterans Administration, they all provided virtually unlimited mortgage financing to poor people with bad credit. As a result, by 2008, there were 27 million subprime and other low-quality mortgages. That was half of the mortgages in the United States. And of these low-quality mortgages, 70% were on the books of either a GSE or another government agency. In 2003, when the bubble in mortgage finance was becoming obvious, and as home prices soared, Barney Frank was asked about the inevitable consequences of giving people mortgages they really couldn't afford. Sooner or later, 
there was going to be a reckoning. But Frank explained, quote, I want to roll the dice a little bit more in this situation towards subsidized housing. And maybe there were other considerations he was dealing with too. Fannie and Freddie weren't merely providing benefits for poor homeowners. The growth of their mortgage portfolios made them the biggest economic engines of the D.C. swamp. They became a legal means for powerful congressmen to enrich themselves and assure their own reelections. In the 10 years leading up to the 2008 crisis, Fannie and Freddie spent a combined $170 million on direct lobbying, the biggest lobbying budget in the United States. Their executives gave another $16 million in direct political donations. Fannie and Freddie also hired many former members of Congress and powerful congressional staffers, Democrats, of course, giving them plus jobs with no real responsibilities. The GSEs even went so far as to open outreach offices in powerful congressional districts, where they served as a constant reminder to voters that it was the Democrats who got them their mortgages. Incredibly, even after the damage caused by GSEs in the mortgage crisis, they still exist. Of course, their liabilities are nowhere to be found in the federal budget. It's snowflake economics. Legally, they still exist as private enterprises. But the Supreme Court ruled in the case of Collins versus Yellen in 2021 that it was perfectly legal for Congress to seize all of their profits year after year, even long after the GSEs had repaid the government for their bailout. In other words, the standing of these companies as separate from the government is entirely a legal fiction. And what is the Biden administration doing with their mortgage banks? Last September, the Biden administration doubled the size of mortgages Fannie and Freddie can purchase and ordered the GSEs to implement, quote, equitable housing finance plans. Those plans became public last week. Fannie's plan includes efforts to encourage, quote, sustainable ownership for black consumers by giving black borrowers down payments. It would also provide, quote, loan level price adjustments, end quote, for black home buyers. Lenders normally require higher interest rates for borrowers with lower credit scores. Fannie plans to offset those rates to, quote, reduce obstacles for prospective black homeowners, end quote. Its policies are specifically targeted toward black homeowners, not other minorities or low-income white borrowers. The Constitution clearly prohibits race-based preferences in government policy. But Fannie and Freddie aren't government agencies. It's perfect snowflake economics. Biden's administration gets to spend billions on a targeted and heavily democratic special interest group without having to go through Congress. There is no downside. After all, these are merely loans. The worst aspect of these policies is the people they will hurt the most are the people the politicians claim to help. Helping someone buy a home they can't afford is an enormous mistake, even if they didn't make a down payment. Radically increasing mortgage credit will cause a big but temporary increase in demand for housing. But it isn't sustainable if the homes aren't actually affordable. Eventually, the borrowers will default, and that will set off a cascade of failed communities and lower housing prices. A lot of borrowers will get hurt. There's no free lunch, snowflakes. Economic reality in North Dakota. Fortunately for our country, something else happened on Sunday, September the 7th, 2008. On the same day, the housing economy collapsed. A new economy was born in America, the shale energy revolution. At about noon that Sunday, right after Hank Paulson finished his press conference, a small independent oil and gas company, Brigham Exploration, began drilling a well in the Williston Basin of North Dakota. The well, Olson 10-15, number 1H, was Bud Brigham's last chance. The looming financial crisis meant there would be no more investors to back his attempts to wrestle oil and gas out of the super hard rock of the Bakken Shale. His company was $300 million in debt 
and its firm's share price was collapsing. The stock, in total, was only worth $60 million. Bud couldn't blame investors for losing faith. He'd been doing Hail Mary fracks on his wells. There's a reason they're called Hail Marys, as they don't work very often. Pushing huge volumes of fracking fluid into extremely long horizontal wells was a long shot play. The extreme distance of these deep horizontal wells resulted in widely dispersed fracking pressure. In short, the technique couldn't deliver enough pounds per square foot of pressure to crack the rock around the borehole. No cracks meant no oil and gas flowing into the well. His existing wells in the area produced less than 200 barrels a day, which didn't cover the cost of operating. But with the Olson 1015 number one well, Bud Brigham was trying something very different. There was nothing left to lose. Four years earlier, a remnant of Enron, an independent oil and gas company called EOG, invented something they called swell packers. They were tough, rubbery membranes that swelled under fracking pressure, sealing off a portion of the well. Thus, swell packers could be used to divide up long horizontal wells into different zones, greatly increasing the effective force, pounds per square foot, of a frack job. Bud Brigham used basic blue-collar logic on an $8 million drilling project. EOG had, so far, broken up mile-long lateral wells into five or six segments. Brigham figured if you drilled a far longer lateral section and broke it up into even more segments and fracked the hell out of it, you'd probably get a lot more oil out of the well. So with Olson 10, 15, number one, Brigham told his crew to drill a 10,000 foot lateral section, a horizontal well almost two miles long. And he told his crew to frack it into 20 different segments. No one had ever done anything like that before. Drilling the well took months, well into the North Dakota winter, and at temperatures well below zero. There was four feet of snow on the ground in late January after the last of 20 frack jobs. Finally, they pulled the last tools out of the well. Would it flow? The Olson 10-15 number one well produced more than 1,000 barrels of oil a day and 1.3 million cubic feet of natural gas a day. At oil prices around 100 and gas prices about 5 bucks, the Olson 10-15 number one well was producing more than $40 million worth of oil and more than $2 million worth of gas a year. By 2011, just a little over two years after finishing the Olson 1015 number one well, Brigham Exploration was producing 21,000 barrels of oil equivalent per day across its 375,000 acres in the Wilson Basin. Brigham expected production to grow to 100,000 barrels per day. Before Brigham's Bakken breakthrough, the entire state of North Dakota produced less than 100,000 barrels of oil per day. Brigham was also getting more efficient. It could now finish wells for only $16 in cost per barrel. By 2014, North Dakota had surpassed both California and Alaska as the number two oil producing state behind Texas with over 1 million barrels a day of production. In October 2011, Norwegian oil giant Stat Oil bought Brigham Exploration for $4.4 billion. The same drilling and fracking techniques that were pioneered in the Balkan have been used across the country and nowhere with more impact than the Permian Basin in West Texas. By 2014, the Permian was producing 2 million barrels of oil a day, roughly 25% of total U.S. production. Looking only at two layers of the Permian Shale, the Sprayberry and the Wolf Camp, the proven resource and the Permian is now the world's second biggest oil field, behind only Saudi's supergiant Garar field. And the Sprayberry Wolf Camp isn't the only giant shale oil field that was discovered in Texas. The Eagle Ford Shale, south and west of Austin, Texas, is the fifth largest oil reserve in the world, just ahead of Russia's largest oil field, the Samotler, in western Siberia. 
In just five years, between 2009 and 2014, Texas oil production tripled, making Texas by itself the world's third largest oil producer ahead of Mexico and just behind Saudi Arabia and Iraq. It had to exaggerate, damn, I had a good run there. <clears throat> it is hard to exaggerate the importance of these developments to our nation's economy. And it's hard to imagine how our economy would have recovered from the mortgage crisis without it. Beginning in 2009, net fixed investment in America's oil and gas fields has made up about 75% of all industrial investment. Increasing production of oil and gas accounts for 40% of all the growth in U.S. industrial production since the end of the Great Recession. By 2019, the shale revolution directly employed 2.8 million Americans and was earning the government billions a year in licenses, fees, and taxes. And those figures, while big, don't explain the total economic benefit. For the first time since 1948, the United States is energy independent. We are not only the world's largest producer of oil and gas, but we are also producing far more energy than we consume, making the U.S. a net energy exporter. In 2007, before the Shell Revolution, Americans sent $400 billion abroad to purchase oil every year. Our annual energy trade gap was so big, it had become a threat to the stability of our currency. Today, not only do we not have to spend the $400 billion every year to get the energy we need, our oil and gas exports are growing, which improves our balance of payments. When will the snowflakes wake up? Not until Russian natural gas is powering Boston. Quote, the world is going to end in 12 years if we don't address climate change, claims Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Before she became a congresswoman, she was a bartender. Clearly, she's an expert in economics. She's an avowed socialist. Ocasio-Cortez believes that fossil fuels are destroying the world. What she doesn't advocate is any reasonable plan to reliably transition from our fossil fuel-dependent economy of today into tomorrow's magic snowflake economy where there's zero net emissions. It occurs to me that like socialists of every vintage, what Ocasio-Cortez wants is to tear down the existing power structures and replace them. Economics really has nothing to do with it, nor does helping the poor. She just wants to be in charge. But this isn't Venezuela, at least not yet. So when Biden's policies objectively fail and lead to more inflation, more bureaucracy, and lower living standards, Ocasio-Cortez will hopefully be shown the door. And that's exactly what will happen if gasoline prices keep rising or if the power grid fails, which seems more and more likely because of the Biden administration's chokehold on America's oil and gas industry. It would be easy to dismiss Ocasio-Cortez's fears about the world ending, except a shockingly large and growing number of powerful investors have likewise adopted the idea that the world will suffer catastrophic consequences if we do not completely stop putting CO2 into the atmosphere. America's largest fund managers, BlackRock and Vanguard, have joined the Net Zero Asset Managers Initiative, along with almost 300 other major asset managers. Collectively, they control $61 trillion in capital. That's a huge number. Their goal is to ensure that companies have zero net emissions by 2050. All of this is, they claim, to make sure that the average temperature of the Earth doesn't rise by more than one and a half degrees by 2100. There are all kinds of logical problems with their premise. The first of which is simply pointing out that the Earth has been warming for a long time, since at least the last ice age, and there is no guarantee it won't continue to warm whether we reduce CO2 emissions or not. And there's another logical question too, which is, why is a slightly warmer Earth necessarily a bad thing overall? I agree with Warren Buffett, who responded to a proxy demand to address the risks Berkshire Hathaway faces because of climate change in his 2016 annual letter. Buffett explained, quote, It seems highly likely to me that climate change poses a major problem for the planet. I say highly likely rather than certain because I have no scientific aptitude 
and remember well the dire predictions of most experts about Y2K, end quote. But for Berkshire's massive insurance businesses, minor changes to the weather, if they evolve over time, are meaningless from a business or investing standpoint. Insurance policies are repriced each year. Fearing the weather in 2050 or in 2100 isn't a rational business problem because businesses like people will simply adjust to the new reality, whatever happens. Furthermore, Buffett explains that in his insurance company, he hasn't yet seen any economic evidence to suggest that relatively small changes in the climate, even if they are occurring, have caused more severe weather or more weather-related damages and claims. Quote, up to now, climate change has not produced more frequent nor more costly hurricanes nor other weather-related events covered by insurance. As a citizen, you may understandably find climate change keeping you up nights. As a homeowner in a low-lying area, you may wish to consider moving. But when you are thinking only as a shareholder of a major insurer, climate change should not be on your list of worries, end quote. Buffett is, without a doubt, the greatest investor of all time. His property and casualty insurance companies are, without a doubt, the finest and best-run businesses in the history of the industry. And guess what? There's not a single signatory to the Net Zero Asset Managers Initiative that's as good as an investor as Warren Buffett. Nor do any of those investors know as much as Buffett does about the potential economic risk from climate change. He owns the world's largest and best insurance companies. So if there's no current significant business or investment risk with climate change, then what's this really all about? Net zero has become a major cudgel of the so-called ESG, Environmental, Social, and Governance Investment Trend, which seems like an effort to starve private companies of capital unless they adhere to progressive political orthodoxy. As a case in point, S&P Global dropped Tesla from its index of ESG companies. Has any company done more to promote the adoption of electric cars? Tesla's outspoken CEO, on the other hand, has fought back against all kinds of progressive political causes, from unions to speech codes. Whatever you think of the legitimacy of the ESG movement, it is having a profound effect on America's most vital economic industry, oil and gas. Suddenly, it's virtually impossible to get access to large-scale project funding to drill new oil wells, or to build a pipeline anywhere, or to build a new gasoline refinery. That's why both oil production and gas production is down in the United States. And that's exactly why gas prices are so high. It's not oil, there's plenty. It's a lack of pipelines and a lack of refinery capacity. Currently, there is zero political will to build these energy assets, mostly because of politicians like Ocasio-Cortez and investors in the Net Zero Asset Managers Initiative. So what will happen when demand continues to increase, but there's little or no capital available to increase production? Prices go up, way up. Proving that history often rhymes, there is once again a leading progressive politician from Massachusetts who seems determined to drive our economy off another cliff. This time around, she's the first openly gay state attorney general. Her name is Maura Healy. She graduated from Harvard, where she majored in government. She's been the Massachusetts attorney general since 2015, where she's made certain no oil and gas pipelines reach New England. Snowflakes take note. She's running for governor this year. I need to pause from the issue to insert an editor's note here. In this era of extreme political correctness, the staff here at Porter & Company believe strongly that it is rude and uncouth to comment about someone else's sexual orientation in print. They also believe doing so will cause our enemies to paint us as bigots, or at least as Neanderthals. Senior management disagrees. In the first place, we are clearly not bigots, nor in any way against adult consensual sexual conduct. To the contrary, we are ardent fans. Nor do we have an iota of curiosity about what Mr. Frank or Miss Healy do in the privacy of their bedroom, except we have sympathy for their intimate partners. We cannot imagine what it must be like to be married to a politician. 
What we do find notable and important for investors to understand is that they both chose to make their sexual orientation a part of their political identity, marking them as both personally progressive and politically liberal. And in our experience, that means that they, even more than other merely liberal politicians, will be notoriously reluctant to accept economic reality. As we've shown you, that political mindset led to catastrophe for the country's housing market in the case of Mr. Frank. And we believe it will soon lead to a catastrophe for the people of New England because of Ms. Healy. Now, let's roll the tape. Roughly 40% of all of New England's electricity is generated using natural gas. But no new pipelines have been built in years. Maura Healy helped ensure that the last two pipelines couldn't get permitted. The result? New England residents pay obscenely high prices for electricity and natural gas, the highest in the nation by far. Natural gas costs almost six times more in New England than it does in most of the other parts of the United States. And electricity costs about five times more than it does in most of the U.S. And there is another more serious problem. Thanks to laws regulating shipping inside the U.S., the Jones Act, Boston must buy the natural gas it can't get from pipelines via LNG from foreign countries. That's why you have consumers in Boston, just a few hundred miles from one of the world's largest natural gas fields, the Marcellus, paying through the nose to import natural gas from Tobago. If there's anything dumber happening in global economics right now, I haven't seen it. This is what happens when snowflake economics hits cold, hard reality. And that reality is about to get a lot worse. This year, with Putin cutting off gas supplies to Europe, LNG is vastly more expensive than usual, with almost no LNG available on the spot market. Even worse, last week, one of the three major LNG export facilities in the United States, Freeport LNG, suffered a fire shutting it down for the rest of the year. That's made domestic natural gas prices collapse, which has hurt our recommendation of EQT in the short term. Critically, though, for New England, European shortages of natural gas are making the global supply of LNG extremely tight. There's a very real chance that Boston will suffer a serious power failure this winter. They should ask Texans what that's like. Last winter, the Texas grid failed, when with the, <clears throat> there's a very real chance that Boston will suffer a serious power failure this winter. They should ask the Texans what that is like. Last winter, the Texas grid failed when wind turbines froze. It's ironic that it is Russian LNG that's been withdrawn from the market. Why? Well, the last time New England was in a jam like this, with plummeting temperatures and zero gas in the tank, what did Maura Healy do? What did Ed Markey, the Massachusetts Senator who is the co-author of the Green New Deal legislation do? In January 2018, during a massive cold snap, New England bought a huge load of Russian LNG. The liberals from Boston bought the very first shipment of LNG from the brand new giant $27 billion Yamal LNG plant on the Arctic Ocean, Putin's latest energy trophy. How does buying LNG from Russia, which presumably doesn't have any of the same environmental, social, or governance concerns that Western financiers do, help save the environment? Maura Healy's spokeswoman explained her view. LNG is a more efficient, an economical way to meet energy needs during instances of high winter demand than building high-risk and costly pipelines that are not needed to maintain reliability. I guess we're going to see about that this winter. Even the liberal Boston Globe wonders what she and the other ESG warriors are thinking. Why is building natural gas pipelines bad? Isn't natural gas a far cleaner fuel source than coal? Isn't it far safer than nuclear power? Isn't it inevitable that sooner or later, on-demand power sources 
must be utilized to maintain a stable power grid. And isn't it against the law to import Russian energy? Attention snowflakes. The entire modern world depends on fossil fuels. Some are extremely dirty. Some are relatively clean. There are, for example, 1.4 billion automobiles around the world that presently require fuel to operate. These automobiles can't be replaced overnight. And if you tried to plug them all in, there's no way the grid could supply enough power, not without fossil fuels. More than 80% of all the installed electrical generation capacity of the world operates with fossil fuels. Without access to fossil fuels, there's no transportation. There's no electricity. There's no modern world. How, we wonder, will the world continue to operate if there really is no more investment at all in fossil fuels? David Swenson, the legendary investor and former head of the Yale Endowment, offered this opinion about economic realities in the face of snowflake student protests at Yale. Quote, if we stopped producing fossil fuels today, we would all die. We wouldn't have food. We wouldn't have transportation. We wouldn't have air conditioning. We wouldn't have clothes. Perhaps Swenson exaggerates slightly. We wouldn't all die. Porter and Company headquarters are located on a farm that's been under cultivation since 1703, long before electricity. Not to worry, dear subscribers, we would survive. But there are some real-life examples to consider. Large economies that operate with very low levels of per capita energy consumption, like India. If America were to meet the ambitions of the net zero crowd, our economy would have to decline in energy intensity to the level of India, where the per capita income is about $2,000 per person a year. How's that sound to you? It won't happen, not in America. So it's only a matter of time until the political winds change. In the meantime, let's try to profit from the snowflake stupidity. Less trade, less investment equals much higher prices. Looks like we're heading into a nasty recession, one that's going to be complicated by the radical climate politics of the Biden administration and a world trade system that's collapsing by the day. The single most important and most valuable concept in economics is comparative advantage. Using what your economy has in abundance to trade for the things that you don't makes the whole world richer. There is no loser in free trade. And without trade, the world economy will break down. The inflation we have seen so far will only be a prelude. Energy prices are soaring globally because Russia has an abundance of oil and gas about 20% of the world's production. With that being taken off the market because of the war in Ukraine, other producers will have to step up production significantly to fill the void, or else there will be a legitimate inflationary crisis. Likewise, the war in Ukraine has caused a huge increase in the price of food, too. We will see real suffering this winter in the Northern Hemisphere, if America doesn't do more to increase energy exports. Russia has now cut its supplies of natural gas to Europe by 50%. Increases to prices mean that Russia has not lost any revenue because of these reductions to supply. That means it is almost certain further reductions will occur. If Russia continues to starve Europe of gas, Europe will run out of natural gas before the end of this year. Even if all available U.S. LNG is shipped to Europe, it would only replace about 25% of the Russian supply. So other suppliers like Australia and Qatar will have to step into the breach. And it's unlikely enough LNG can be sourced from the world market without very significant increases to price. The result is going to be destabilizing rates of inflation across Europe and potentially severe electrical shortages this winter. America must respond to these challenges with our relative comparative advantages in both energy and agriculture. Our energy complex should have been mobilized already to dramatically increase production, helping to reduce the prices and provide energy security for our allies. Vast new LNG export capabilities should already be under construction. 
But we aren't doing these things because the Biden administration doesn't want to be seen making any new investments in fossil fuels. That's anathema to progressives. What will Biden do? It's scary to think about. What's most likely is short-term measures to reduce domestic energy and food prices by prohibiting exports. Yes, by separating our resources from the world's markets, we can temporarily create a glut here and lower prices. But that benefit will be temporary, and the consequences for our ability to buy goods that are scarce here, but in abundance in other markets, will cause the overall rate of inflation to increase and the overall value of the dollar to fall. It would also be an enormous failure on the part of America's efforts to become a global energy giant. Given the snowflake economics of our current president, I am not optimistic about the short term, but I also expect the Democrats to be destroyed in the midterm elections. And that, along with persistent inflation and a recession, might be enough to make Biden reconsider his steadfast opposition to fossil fuel investment and infrastructure. And if it doesn't, then it's more and more likely that we will be rewarded for our investment into America's shale revolution, not through global expansion, but simply because further restrictions to production will cause domestic prices to rise. Either way, over the long term, the next seven to 10 years, I continue to believe that the development of America's natural gas resources and our global LNG export capability are among the best investment opportunities in the world. I expect to see several decades of growth in production and a massive expansion of global LNG revenues. Virtually nothing could be better for America's economic well-being than to continue to lead the world in producing natural gas and exporting LNG. Talk about comparative advantage. No other country comes close to us in the size of our resources or in the size of our infrastructure. There is no other practical way to ensure the reliability and the growth of the world's electrical grids other than a massive expansion of LNG and natural gas production, both of which are most likely to be led by American companies. If the climate warriors really want to reduce emissions, natural gas is the only affordable and safe way to replace coal-fired plants around the world. And that, along with new technology to enable carbon capture, is the only way to possibly come close to hitting 2050's net zero targets. Sooner or later, the radical environmentalists in government and in finance are going to have to get realistic. Americans won't put up with $5 gasoline and power grids that fail, and they shouldn't have to. My focus has been trying to understand how the biggest natural gas resources in America are most likely to be developed and how they will eventually be sold and delivered into the world's market. In the first issue of The Big Secret on Wall Street this week, we covered EQT, the country's largest producer of natural gas, and its efforts to develop the Marcellus Shale and build its own export infrastructure on the East Coast. In the short term, however, EQT's price is likely to be driven by domestic, not international, gas prices. And domestic gas prices got walloped over the past two weeks as a fire shut down one of the country's major LNG export terminals, Freeport LNG. My advice is simple. Plan on investing in EQT for the next 7 to 10 years. The stock, along with natural gas prices, is likely to be volatile. Paper gains and paper losses of more than 50% won't be unusual. Do your best to ignore the volatility. Just remember, buy a few shares when you see that it's down. Currently in the U.S., there are only eight LNG export terminals, with the newest being Venture Global's Kalkeskiu Pass, a 1.4 billion cubic feet per day facility. There are, however, two other new LNG plants that are approved and currently under construction. One belongs to a partnership between super major oil company ExxonMobil and Qatar. Called Golden Pass, it's located along the Gulf Coast at Sabine Pass, Texas. It's a 2.1 billion cubic feet per day export facility. The other new LNG plant under construction is Driftwood LNG. It's building a 4 billion cubic feet per day terminal in Louisiana. And it is very interesting. 
If I could build any business in the world right now, I'd build this one. The closest major shale field to the export facilities on the Gulf of Mexico is called the Haynesville Shale. It's a prolific shale resource whose growth and production is third behind the Permian and the Marcellus. If you were going to start a natural gas export company from scratch, the first thing you would do is buy some proven assets in the Haynesville Shale. You'd have a permanent strategic advantage. Your resource would be the closest to the largest concentration of LNG infrastructure in the U.S. You could secure a few decades of supply, gas in the ground, and start selling gas while working on the permitting of your pipeline and your LNG terminal. Then you'd shop around for big foreign buyers of LNG and sign up long-term purchase agreements to help finance the construction of the pipeline and the LNG export terminal. You'd want reliable partners with zero human rights or financial problems, places like Singapore or the Netherlands, and maybe a big major U.S. oil company too for credibility. Then you'd have to spend a fortune on lawyers to get all the permits you need to build everything and get permission to export the gas. And those permits will be worth more than their weight in gold, especially during the current administration. Finally, you want to partner with one of the best and most reliable construction companies in the world, like Bechtel. Then you just need to round up $5 billion in equity and maybe another $20 billion in debt financing, and you'd be off to the races. Yeah, I know that property. About 20 years ago, I was fishing in Pinas Bay, Panama for black marlin. I'd flown down there with one of my best contacts in the tech field, a senior researcher at Bell Labs. We were busy talking about the wreckage of the tech bust and trying to figure out if Friendster or MySpace were going to work out as investments. For the record, I never did understand the social media business model until I finally saw people using Facebook in the mid-2000s. But something far more important happened on that fishing trip. I met a living legend, the Texas oil man, Cactus Schroeder. It's a long story and the details aren't important, but I ended up spending a day fishing with Cactus. We caught 41 sailfish that day, one of my all-time best days fishing. Cactus is about 15 years older than me and was just far ahead of me in life at that time to be a mentor. I was then, and still am now, fascinated with different businesses. I love to learn about them from real operators. I sat on that boat and asked Cactus the 100 dumbest questions you can imagine. Everything from technical stuff, coal bed methane was a big deal back then, to how he handled his donations to various charities. Cactus never stopped smiling. I didn't seem to bother him in the slightest. Cactus has been in the oil business his entire life. His dad was in the oil business too. There aren't many people in the Texas oil business that he doesn't know, and there's nobody that doesn't like him. He has been an incredible friend to me in all kinds of ways, but I'll never forget what he said to me when I called him Three years ago, my wife and I had separated and she told me she wanted a divorce. Cactus said, oh, Porter, man, that's awful. I sure hope she wakes up soon and realizes what a terrible mistake she's making. That's a good friend. And now I know exactly what I'm going to say when anyone shares that kind of bad news with me. Anyways, when I stumbled onto the new LNG project, Driftwood, I knew who to call. You see, unlike Chenier, which is publicly traded and owns two very big LNG export terminals on the Gulf Coast, the folks who are building driftwood started out with a big investment in the Haynesville Shale. They are building the exact same LNG export business I would build. Buy gas in the ground cheaply. Build the pipeline to get the gas to the coast. Build the LNG terminal to sell it to the world. The best part, there's no reason for me to go to all the trouble to build this business because they've already done all the work. They bought 11,060 net acres in the Haynesville and northern Louisiana, including working interests in 78 producing wells. Last year, those wells produced 39 million cubic feet of gas a day net to the Driftwood Group. Revenue was a little over 70 million last year, up about 20 million from the year before thanks to higher gas prices. The current value of proved reserves is $364 million. But obviously, nobody would invest in this deal yet just because of their current production and reserves. The really important things they have in place are long-term supply deals with 
Gunvor, which is a Singapore trading company, Vital, which is from the Netherlands, and two deals with Shell, the multinational giant. The company also has all of the permits it needs to build the entire driftwood project, both the pipeline and the LNG facility. And it has a deal with giant construction firm Bechtel to build it all. All the pieces are in place. What's missing is only the financing. So I called Cactus and told him what I was working on. Oh yeah, I see, he said. What a deal. Sounds like some pretty smart guys working on that. I wonder how they get the financing done with all this ESG stuff going on. Porter, ain't nobody can get any money these days, Cactus told me. Well, I replied, they, they do have all the permits, and someone is going to have to build some LNG soon to support Europe. I don't know when they will get the financing, but it will happen eventually, I'm sure. What I don't know, though, is whether or not the land they bought in the Haynesville is any good. Have you ever drilled any wells over there? Cactus replied, no, I've never drilled over there. That play was super hot maybe 10 years ago. Then it really cooled off when gas prices fell out of bed. And now it's super hot again. But there's a friend of mine I know who owns a lot of dirt over there. He's drilled a bunch of wells. Let me call him. Next morning, Cactus calls me and says, man, what a small world. Guess who sold those driftwood guys all that land? My buddy. He sold half his acreage to them to finance all the drilling he's been doing. And he found enough gas that he's about to sell out and retire. So, I know from Cactus that the land that the Driftwood guys have in Haynesville is pretty good. And in March, Driftwood began construction on its LNG terminal and is proceeding with phase one of the project. Currently, the company's balance sheet is pretty clean. Last year, it raised $100 million in equity and paid off all of its existing debt. Then it issued one small piece of debt, a senior debenture, with about $56 million outstanding for working capital. Just a couple of weeks ago, it sold its first big tranche of project-related debt to move forward with construction. The financing was $500 million in senior secured convertible notes with a 6% coupon and a conversion price of $5.72. With that financing, the company has plenty of capital, and thanks to its existing wells, it is generating revenue, even though it's still a development stage company. One thing to certainly be aware of, though, is the Driftwood project is extremely risky. There are all kinds of things that can go wrong, and this is a very small stock. It has a market cap of just over $2 billion, and its share price is going to be extremely volatile. Moves up of 100% or more won't be unusual, and moves down of 50% or more won't be either. On average, the shares are 100% more volatile than the NASDAQ. So please, don't buy this deal if you aren't comfortable with a lot of volatility. Likewise, this is the kind of situation where if something goes badly wrong, you can lose all your money. I don't think that's going to happen, but it isn't out of the question. The next big move for the stock will come when it announces major funding for the next phase of the project, which could be a major equity raise with a larger energy company. Once that happens, I wouldn't be surprised to see the market cap move above $10 billion. While an announcement like that could come at any time, I would be surprised to see a deal like that develop until later in the project timeline, like next year or maybe early in 2024. There are three little things I really like about this deal that most investors wouldn't know. First, the three largest institutional investors in the company are the three leading ESG money management firms, Vanguard, BlackRock, and State Street. That tells me it's not unlikely that this company will be considered one of the new breed of energy companies like EQT that's embraced by environmentalists because of the amount of coal-fired power plants its natural gas exports take offline. Second, one of the other major shareholders is Paulson & Company, a hedge fund I have tremendous respect for. John Paulson is one of the best investors of the last 30 years, and I have followed his investing for much of that time. He's been buying shares since Driftwood started construction. Third, 
Finally, the thing that gives me the most confidence and the Driftwood Group's ability to get the deal financed is because the ownership group is led by Sharif Suki. He is also the founder of Chenier, the $30 billion market cap LNG export firm that was the first company to build a massive LNG export facility on the Gulf Coast. I first recommended buying Chenier over a decade ago at prices below $10. Driftwood is Suki's second major project. I expect it to be more successful over time than Chenier. Oh, one more thing. You won't find Driftwood trading on the stock exchanges. Driftwood is just the name of the LNG terminal and pipeline project. The project is owned by Suki's holding company, Tellurian Inc. Trades on the NASDAQ. The symbol is T-E-L-L. Current price is just below $4. And that is the big secret on Wall Street this week.